electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Good evening or good afternoon out west and welcome to the CNBC special Taking Stock. I am Brian Sullivan. Jim off again tonight. Is inflation cooling off? Think again. More prices jumping in January and now one Fed head pushing for even more rate hikes. That smacks stocks. Your money ending the day firmly in the red. The Dow down 431 points. S&P more than a percent and the Nasdaq down 1.8 percent. But if you are looking for signs of green, hey, who isn't? We have got one. Bitcoin. Crossing back above 25,000 earlier today, but why? Tonight, we're going to dig into the Fed and your money, plus Tesla taking a dive as they announce the big new recall. We'll tell you why. And later, is Opportunity knocking at DoorDash? That stock reporting after the close. We're going to break down that stock's next move as everybody just sits around and gets food delivered to them. We're going to deliver you some markets right now. Let's get it started and kick off the hour with Mike Santoli to break down exactly what happened today. I suspect at some point you will use the word inflation in this sure. report. Yeah, Brian. I mean, obviously, the stickiness of inflation uh, this week, CPI and producer prices as well, uh, has just changed the tone of the debate uh, about when exactly the Federal Reserve is going to be done raising rates. Markets seem to take a little bit of credit for seeing the end of the Fed tightening campaign uh, going into this week. Uh, Obviously, now we have some Fed speakers out there saying maybe it's going to take a little bit more, uh, which I think was an excuse for the market to kind of take a breather back off, chop around, and decide if it's gone a little bit too far and got a little overexcited, especially in some of the more speculative names that were big a couple of years ago and have had big comebacks, like the NVIDIAs, the Shopify's, which took a hit today. Uh, now, I would want to contextualize this and say that we've been knocking around this exact area in the S&P for two weeks. 4,100, really the whole month, uh, has been right in this range. So it's not as if you've changed the overall trajectory, but definitely brought up the question as to whether the market has kind of used up a lot of energy just to stay in place for uh, this month. All right, Mike, why don't you stick around? Let's bring in another voice to this conversation, try to help sort out exactly what's going on. Joining us now is Quincy Crosby, Chief Global Strategist for LPL Financial. Quincy, it's... It's like one of those 80s horror movies, right, inflation, where every time you think they're dead, they come back. And all of a sudden we get this stronger than expected inflation number, more Fed, t- Bullard, ah, this, that, you know, more rate hikes. Where and how 
maybe like a horror movie. Does this end? Well, not only did Mester and, and Buller talk about rate hikes, more of them, it was the 50 basis points part of it that got the market. That If you take a look at the market, soon as those 50 basis points came out of their mouths, they, all of a sudden the futures market priced in a little bit more for March 22nd, 23rd in terms of a 50 basis point rate hike. Not much, but it's moving higher. And having those two, granted, they are, you know, on the the, the uh, hawkish side of, of it. They're not they're not voting, but they are considered to be very keen observers for the market. So we've got financial conditions extremely easy. Just take a look at high yield. Take a look at the spreads. It, mm. it's, as if, it's as if we're in wonderland. The point I want to make is the market is beginning to grab onto it. And granted, we were going into overbought territory. Yesterday's market, we saw the uh, small caps do very well, but you didn't see a whole lot of new highs. You would expect that after after that kind of move. That Those internals were telling us this market was prepared to just pull back and we got the catalyst today. But it's more than just a day catalyst. It's something that changes the market's direction and perception. You know, I want to go back to that heady year 1995, Mike, because one of the top songs was TLC's Waterfalls, right? Don't go chasing don't water. I don't know how you chase a waterfall. They don't, they don't move. But that aside, I wonder if I bring up 95 in that song because 1994, the Fed raised rates by 2.5%, one of the most aggressive rate hiking cycles we had ever seen. All that yeah. happened in 1995 was the Dow rose 33%. In other yeah. words, history says... Just because you raise rates doesn't mean you cannot have a market rally, correct? That's right. Uh, it's not really the level necessarily you've gotten to. What happened in 94, as you mentioned, the Fed was being proactive in trying to choke off inflation before it got to be a problem. It seemed to succeed in that. The stock market had a, a rough and choppy year, but not nearly as bad as 2022 was uh, when the Fed was tightening last year. And really, that is... Uh, the period where the the immaculate soft landing that people like to point to as the best case scenario was executed. Because in February of 95, uh, Greenspan stopped raising rates. He even said maybe the next move is a cut. Market just didn't look back from there. It was a cheaper yeah. market. We were earlier in the in the economic cycle. Unemployment had more room to go down. But yeah, it is a good lesson that it's not necessarily the fact that the Fed has raised rates that says market can't perform. You know, I didn't set that up, Mike, but it's your words are perfect as always, Quincy. Because here, there's two markets that we can look at. There is a market where one of these Fed heads, one of these days, uses the word cut, right, or lowering rates. We haven't heard that, and we may not. That would probably send the market soaring, is my guess. You tell me right or wrong. Or we have the market, which is what they're telling us, which is they're going to be higher for longer and don't even think about lower rates. Where do you stand? Well, I say that, you know, the Fed doesn't know any more than we know. And the they Fed know will be less. dependent. We're data dependent. And so is the Fed Fund's futures market. So the key here really is whether or not the market can withstand even if rates have to go higher. I mean, for example, if they start talking about move from five and a half terminal to, say, six, that the market's not going to be very pleased with that because you don't mind higher rates as long as it is underpinned by growth. It's when those higher rates look as though they're going to, you know, strangle growth that the market becomes very upset. So it's a fine line where we are right now. 
But again, we could end the year and just muddle through this and just have what we used to call very scientific, a muddle through in earnings, a muddle through in guidance, and a muddle through in the market. And get through this period, we need a bridge to when the Fed has reached that terminal point. And we're closer. There's no doubt about that. We're closer. Whether or not they do it with 50 basis points or a couple of more 25 basis points, we are much closer. The fact is that when you look at the numbers on the PPI, for example, it's moving in the right direction. Same thing with um, the CPI. We're going to have rents down, even Mm. though they're 40 percent. Rents are coming down. Every industry report suggests rents are on their way down. It will show up probably in the next report, even at the margin, and then the one after that. Maybe and our view, the- Quincy, maybe our viewers and listeners care more. They care about the Fed, but they probably care more about their investments. Do you think stocks can or will end the year higher than they are now? Uh, yeah, after today, yeah, I, I, I do. I absolutely do. And by the way, we're looking at fixed income. Uh, fixed Income is providing a tremendous opportunity for investors. I think people don't realize it because it's been so long since we've had such a rich offering within fixed income, whether it's investment grade, uh, Mm. treasuries. And and because financial conditions are so easy and loose, by the way, based on the uh, Chicago financial conditions report, Take a look at high yield. I'm not endorsing that, but there's a reason those spreads yeah. are, are, are tight. They haven't they haven't sprung out, and therefore the market is saying, "Look, there's a lot for you to do. You got to hang in there. We've got to get through this." And the question then becomes: the love affair with technology stocks, can they deal with high rates, or have they just begun to normalize and not become those you know standard long duration uh, sectors? I, yeah, I this know. This is important. Yeah. I, it's just, Mike, I just wonder, you know, and everything you read, people you talk to, I mean, a 4%, 5% treasury yield, I mean, it's not great money, but it's risk-free, probably, and not awful. And if you, you get some tax breaks, if you buy directly from a state tax level, that, that's got to compete with equities at some yeah, point. Yeah, it, it certainly raises the hurdle uh, for people's willingness to take on more risk in equities. The other purpose it can serve, though, is it can act as a pretty good buffer uh, for taking risk in equities. In other words, if, you, if you're sitting there with a stock bond portfolio and you got 5% off the top in your fixed income, well, your first few percent in stocks on downside is covered in a sense. So it does actually return fixed income to that role of being support and ballast within a portfolio, even if uh, you might not want to necessarily go out the risk curve as much into equities uh, as you would when rates were, were near zero. All right. Well, good debate. Tough day today. Overall, still a good year. Still a very good start to the year. And the January rule, if you want to call it that, implies good things for the year. We'll see. We'll meet back here in like 10 and a half months, guys. We'll see you then. All right, Mike Quincy, thank you. All right. Lots more to come right here on this CNBC special taking stock. Stay with us. Coming up, location, location, location. A look into real estate with Redfin. Plus, a chemical romance. What can this DuPont spinoff offer your portfolio? And turn signals. Tesla's latest with Bill LeBeau. When Taking Stock returns. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Welcome back. Let's talk everybody's favorite topic, real estate. Because with a national housing shortage, if you were hoping for a lot of new homes to be built, you might be out of luck. Data today showing that new home construction dropped in January. That is the fifth straight month that has happened. Diana Olick is here with the numbers. And why? What's, What's going on, Diana? Well, look, Brian, home construction actually dropped more than expected in January, despite two months of gains in home builder sentiment. Single family starts fell just over 4% month to month and were 27% lower than the year before. Housing build, home building permits, an indicator of future construction, fell a little less for the month, but were 40% lower year over year. Now, completions, though, are now outpacing starts, which means the supply situation is going to drop going into spring. Not great news. As for multifamily apartments, starts were also down and permits were flat for the month and down annually. But the number of apartments currently under construction is the highest since 1973. So a bigger slowdown in that sector is coming on soon. And I can't leave you without saying that mortgage rates ticked up again today. 30-year fixed average to 6.78%. Remember, it was in the low sixes all of January and briefly even crossed Cynthia percent range two weeks ago. So what does all mean, you ask? It's kind of hard to say if the housing market is recovering at all when affordability isn't improving and builders are feeling slightly better, but they still aren't putting more holes in the ground. Brian? Are rates the main reason or is it fear, recession concerns, D, all the above? Um, Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I think it's the mortgage rate volatility. Look, you saw rates peak in October at well over 7%. Then they pull back in December. Everybody starts to feel a little better. People start to go out and look. The home builders see more people in their showrooms, so their Mm. sentiment starts to rise in January. All good January, January. Then suddenly rates start to go up again. Now everybody's getting nervous. So, you know, it's hard to say what exactly the builders are thinking other than they don't want to be stuck with a whole lot of backlog of homes, and that's why they're still slowing. Well, I'm also guessing, and I know it's not all builders, some are cash rich, that builders may borrow money themselves to build a home. So they're getting the double whammy, right? They're worried about the buyer being able to afford it, and then they got to borrow the money to build the home. Right. Because so their cost of building these homes is rising, not only for the labor and the materials, which we've been talking about for years, has been exponentially high. Land prices, thankfully, are coming down a bit. But again, you're right. When they have to borrow to build, it's costing them more. And so you can't lower prices and that hits affordability. Yeah, they can't lower it below their cost unless they're just really bad at business. Diana Olick, 
Thank you. <laughs> All right, so housing starts lower, mortgage rates are higher, builder sentiment, though, is strong. And by the way, some open houses still attracting huge numbers of potential buyers. Needless to say, housing is a little bit of a mystery right now. So what's really going on here? Let's bring in Glenn Kelman, CEO of Redfin, for more. Glenn, good to have you back on. Yeah, I'm waving at you from a distance as well. I got a good friend of mine who's a realtor in New Jersey. Um, he told me that there were 70 families looking at a home Last weekend, seven zero. I mean, yeah, I was gobsmacked. Wow. I see you kind of going, what? Um, I know real estate is local. What are you seeing? Is there a national trend anywhere? Uh, well, it's consistent with the national trend. So normally in a downturn, inventory shoots to the roof, but that hasn't happened. There's been a nominal increase, 40% from a calamitous pandemic low but we're still at half the level of inventory we had 2016 through 2019, and that was a seller's market. So because so many people got a loan at 3%, the listing customers we would normally have are deciding to stay in their place or to rent it out. And that means that there is going to be a generation of millennials who are not going to be able to find a home to buy. There's just not enough homes on the market. And maybe that's why we're seeing, in in some areas anyway, a much stronger market than one might expect. There's no national housing collapse, is there? Well, it was pretty rough in November, and then the market got significantly better in January. But now demand is pulling back again. So we get real-time data on how many people are touring because we run this big website and a brokerage. And so we see all the people looking at properties and Demand was down about 35% from pandemic highs in November. That moderated into the teens in Mm. January, but it's ticked back up to about a 20, 25% drop in February when rates go up 75 basis points over the space of two weeks. Some people are going to freak out. Well, I guess here's my question regarding rates. I know higher rates cut into affordability. You mentioned November. I'm trying to think about what the bond market did in November, Glenn. Is it rate well, volatility? Yeah, they were moving quickly. And does that kind of paralyze buyers? At least now, people kind of know what they're going to have to pay rather than like, oh, gosh, they keep going up. Let's just sit it out and see where they end up. I don't know. Yeah, maybe in early 2022, people were willing to shake off rate increases. But now the market's gotten a little bit spooked. And so rates and housing are moving in opposite directions. When rates go up, housing demand comes down. It's a pretty strong inverse relationship. So we haven't seen that take its toll on the housing market in February yet. Uh, But at the very top of the funnel, people looking at property, some of them are starting to step back. Others are shaking it off. Uh, It's not as strong as it was in November, but it's still a setback. We're in the media, in case you didn't know. We're obsessed with round numbers. We love just big round numbers, right? Okay. So I'll do my I, best. That's just, for whatever reason, that's just what we do. So if we're at 6.99% on the 30-year mortgage in a few months, does that matter if we get to 7.00? Does that seven handle, as we would say in the business, is that going to terrify buyers? Do these, these kinds of small but psychological signs matter in real estate? 
I think so. I mean, part of it is a psychological barrier being broken. Part of it is that people are just trying to settle into a groove. So there was a negative groove at the end of 2022. And it was just important for people to go away for the holidays and reset. It felt like buyers came back into the market with more than the usual vim and vigor in January, which was unexpected for us. And I think if folks get thrown off their game, especially if it hits seven, they might take a step back. But right now, there are some people in the market who want to continue and others who are saying, no mas. Glenn, it's an interesting market. We're glad you're coming on because you've got all that real-time data. You know what exactly you're, you know what you're seeing. It's a stressful time for a lot of people in the real estate industry. We get it. Pockets of strength. Come back on anytime, Glenn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take Always. care. Take care. All right. Random but interesting. Redfin was once a CNBC Disruptor 50 company, and now we are accepting nominations for the 11th annual list of innovators. If you are a private venture-backed company or know of one that's a good candidate, scan the QR code on your screen or go to cnbc.com slash disruptors to learn more. All right, on deck, talk about a deer in the headlines. We're going to get the lowdown on the giant from Moline, Sima Moat, next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed. All right, welcome back quick. I I want you to think of one application that you may not have thought would be a good fit for artificial intelligence. Are you thinking? What'd you come up with? How about farming? That's right. John Deere is hoping its new AI technology will pay off when it reports tomorrow. Seema Modi joining us now with a look at what we can expect. Seema. Brian, investors like Kathy Wood have been bullish on John Deere's bet on disruptive technology. Analysts pointing out that it consistently outspends its peers on research and development. And that's really helped the agriculture equipment giant deliver new innovative farm technology like the exact shot that it revealed at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last month with the help of artificial intelligence. It's basically able to identify seeds and use a targeted approach to apply fertilizer, which Deere says will bring down fertilizer costs for farmers by 60%. 
So the key question on tomorrow's earnings call will be, what does demand look like for its new precision technology? And are agriculture equipment prices peaking? As agriculture commodity prices like corn and soybean come off their highs, are farmers less receptive to pay top dollar for Deere's tractors? And if so, does Deere lose pricing power going into the 2023? The latest USDA farm report forecasts a 21% year-over-year decline in net cash income for the farm sector in 2023. Listen, that's one of the reasons Deere's stock has underperformed this year. It's down about 5%, but it's had a strong run, up about 42% from its 52-week low. Deutsche Bank analysts saying the stock is trading at a premium to its industrial peers like Agco and CNH Industrials. Their price target on Deer stock is $3.95 a share, currently trading right around $4.05. Brian? All right, Seema, thank you very much. So let's drill down a bit for a second on the broader industrial sector, which was certainly helped, especially last year, by those agricultural stocks that Seema just mentioned. Now check out the industrial spider ETF. It's up about 5% year-to-date. Not great, not terrible. In all, though, the industrial sector represents a big category of stocks, 71 in total, and that is the second most only to technology. But even though the group as a whole isn't crushing it, some big names are. Look at this. Stocks like Generac, United Rentals, United and American Airlines, and GE rounding out the winners. Big gains, all up nearly 30% this year. Here's kind of an interesting rags-to-riches story. Generac was the worst performing industrial last year, but is the number one performing industrial this year. All those wild winter storms seem to be convincing folks to splurge on a generator. I'm being sarcastic because it's 65 degrees in New Jersey right now. 65. Saw a guy running without a shirt on today in mid-February. Now, many of those industrial names also tied closely to manufacturing. So let's turn now to a company that is working to expand the footprint of American manufacturing and innovation through its applications, everything from electric cars to semiconductors to medical devices. Mark Newman is the CEO of chemicals company Comores. Mark's good to have you on. Brian, thanks for having me. Great to be here today. You know, listen, you're one of these companies that does not get a lot of attention. A lot of people probably, they've maybe heard of you, but you know, you're an industrial company. The consumer's not going out and buying your your products, but you, you're the building block of many other products. Do you see a yes, recession, Brian. an imminent recession? Uh, Brian, there's a lot of economic uncertainty, but interestingly, there is also simultaneously quite a bit of growth, secular growth in the new economy from semicon to electric vehicles, as well as our work in hydrogen. So uh, significant secular growth in a number of key areas, despite the global uncertainty in the macro economy. You know, and as a chemicals company, I'm sure you take your share of sort of like, you know, abuse on on the environmental side. But here's the dirty secret of what you guys do, and many others, by the way. You can't build a lot of these new energy technologies, windmills, hydro, hydrogen, electric cars, without many of the stuff you guys make. Yeah, Brian, that's a great point. And, you know, chemistry is the heart of material science. Material science is the heart of clean energy, the energy transition we're seeing more broadly, as well as advances in advanced electronics. You know, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence. Well, the engine for that is the semicon space. And there are no semicons without some of the polymers we make. And we're the only U.S. producer 
of a key polymer that's needed to onshore semicon fabrication in the US. So uh, you're absolutely right. We're critical and chemistry and the chemical industry are critical to many of the advances in material science. Does the dramatic drop in natural gas prices help you? You know, uh, a lot of our manufacturing is based here in the U.S. And so that gives us a competitive advantage versus our global competitors. Uh, so, yes, we've, we've really benefited from, you know, our focus on U.S. manufacturing and obviously U.S. energy costs at an advantage to others. You know, I'm glad you said that because I've been covering this European energy crisis story since before the war. It existed before the war. The war exacerbated it. And luckily, they've got enough natural gas to get through this year. But the other side of that story is not just having the gas. It's at what cost, right? So talk to us about, and I worry, if you're a manufacturer in Europe, BASF or whoever it may be, your cost structure has got to be a lot higher than here in the U.S. Yeah, we we value our U.S. manufacturing base. And clearly, energy is a part of that. Clearly, we have a great workforce uh, and obviously, we have a great supply base here in the U.S. and around the world. So, listen, we are leveraging a global supply chain, but certainly very focused on, on U.S. manufacturing. Additionally, you know, we're focused on how we can drive advances in clean energy. So the work we're doing on hydrogen, for example, uh, the work we're doing in EVs, uh, we think is all part of energy diversification and energy dependence here in the U.S. while advancing the focus on climate and decarbonization. So we think all of these things can work together, Brian, in a way that benefits the U.S. and and also uh, can be shared by our global energy partners. I'm shocked by the passion around hydrogen. There are people out there who believe that hydrogen is the future of clean energy. And there are other smart people who say way too expensive, dirty in its own right, et cetera. What's the future of hydrogen? Yeah, our our view is there is a path to economic renewable hydrogen. Clearly, the the industry is starting off today at, at a disadvantage in terms of the cost structure. The work through the Inflation Reduction Act, I think, will drive a lot of investment that will bring scale to the renewable hydrogen economy. And our role, again, with our Nafion membrane is really to look at how we make uh, the production of hydrogen more cost-effective over time. We're focused on the durability of the membrane and the energy efficiency. So, you know, as we have advances in bringing down the cost of renewable sourced electricity and we improve the efficiency of the hydrogen economy, I think we can make real advances here uh, going forward. There you go. And we're going to find out a lot of people really. It's shocking how many people have strong views about hydrogen. Camors spun off from DuPont eight years ago. Hard to believe. Like your eighth birthday, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Brian. Great to be on. Thank you. Appreciate that. Be well. All right. Coming up. Electric cars made up 6% of total vehicle sales last year. The president's goal by 2035, which is only 12 years away, is 50%. That's a big jump. But is it possible? Is it impossible? We don't know. So we asked you, with what else? A Twitter poll. What percentage 
of electric car and truck sales will we have in 2035? Not the total number of electric cars on the road by then, because it adds up over every year, but the percentage of cars and trucks sold in the year 2035 that will be electric. Well, you're a bit skeptical. 42% of you said we might get to just halfway of our goal, picking 11 to 25%. That was the number one response. A fourth of you said we may make it over 25%, just 14%. You said, yep, we can get to more than half of all cars and trucks sold to be electric within 12 years. Who's right? I guess we'll all have to meet up in 12 years and 10 months and see who is right. Anyway, let's stay on cars because with Tesla recalling cars and Ford temporarily halting production of the electric F-150 for battery issues, does that change the game? Phil Lebeau joining us next. Don't go anywhere. Still much more to do on this special taking stock. Coming up, battery-powered boredom or MVP lawn. We hit the road. Plus, when the sun goes down, the boards light up. After hours movers, you need to see when taking stock returns. All right, welcome back. Let's talk Tesla. Tumbling today, announcing it is recalling over 360,000 vehicles due to faulty, fully self-driving software. Phil Bo is here now with more. Phil, what do we know? Brian, this is a recall of basically vehicles from 2016 to 2023 that had the full self-driving beta technology in it. It's known as FSD Beta. This essentially is a driver assist system. The technology allows people to take their hands off the wheel. Well, according to NHTSA, after they have investigated a number of incidents, they say it may cause a crash. It may not be a case where it stops where it's supposed to at an intersection. It may not uh, go turn where it's supposed to. may not match with the speed limits. They have... 362,758 vehicles with this software. And again, between 2016 and 2023, what's the solution? Tesla has agreed, even though they disagree with the NHTSA findings, they have agreed as part of this recall to issue an over-the-air software update that has had more than a few people. In fact, I've heard from a few people who have said, if it's an over-the-air software update, it's not really a recall. Well, that's what NHTSA calls it. Elon Musk also tweeting today saying he doesn't think it should be called a recall. In his tweet, he said the word recall for an over-the-air software update is anachronistic and just flat wrong. That may be the case, but it will be happening over the next couple of weeks. As you take a look at deliveries of Teslas, I bet you this topic may come up when they have their investor day, which is coming up March 1st. That's when we'll get an update, Brian, from Elon Musk about his vision for the next year. For Tesla. And whether or not he talks about full self-driving beta technology remains to be seen. So to be clear, you own a Tesla, it's in that range. You don't have to take it anywhere. You just download the new software, that's it? If you have the, yeah, if you have, if, remember, you, not everybody has it in their Tesla. You either have to pay the $15,000 up front or $199 a month in order to be part of the full self-driving beta test group, if you will. So, you know, for those people, there will be an over-the-air software update to correct those uh, issues that uh, were highlighted as part of this investigation. Why are they calling it a recall? I, I, I tend to agree with Musk here. What's the, is that just they don't know, they don't have a new word because well, they're in the past? Or... Well, that's, that's, that's what NHTSA calls it, Brian. I, whether you want to call it a recall, something else, there was a defect that Tesla agreed needed to be fixed. You want to call it a, a software defect fix? What do you want to call it? 
This is what this is what NHTSA calls it. They call it a recall. I like it. We have SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Let's call it the SDF, Software Defect Fix. You just coined it. That's it. The SDF. Fill the boat. Trademark it. All right. Sure. Uh, let's move on to Ford. You said there might be some some more news on this F-150 electric lightning battery issue. Right. A few a few more de- de- details. Remember, yesterday it came out that they were going to be or they had halted production of the F-150 Lightning, the all electric pickup truck, uh, because there was a battery issue. Well, now it comes out that there had been a fire that uh, was in, in a battery pre delivery. So as part of the inspection process, there was a fire uh, at the Ford facility uh, in Dearborn. This is not a case where it was shipped and it was at a dealership where somebody was had it in their driveway. They believe they have found the root cause of this, Brian. So as a result, they will be working on figuring out exactly what that root cause is, how they fix it. Production is still expected to be halted till the end of next week. And remember, this is not a battery that Ford built. This is a battery cell that came from their supplier, SKON, out of Atlanta, who also supplies other automakers, not just Ford. So there are other automakers that are supplied by SKON, and so they believe that they have found the root cause of this battery issue. Okay, well, maybe some good news there for potential buyers and for Ford investors itself. Philbo, thank you. All right, let's get another check on the market, shall we? The major average is down across the board today. This after data showed that, despite what you may hear at times, inflation apparently not coming down very much. That was followed by more talk of more rate hikes, the Dow ultimately ending down over 400 points. The Nasdaq got clipped for about 1.8%. But why don't we do a little sully side up, shall we? What did make a move positive? Bitcoin. That crypto climbing higher today and what could be a decoupling from the stock market, briefly breaking above 25,000 for the first time since August, below 24 now, but it went up above 25. And let's check on futures. Yes, super thinly traded. I know a lot going on, but the ones that are traded, and it may just literally be like one contract at this hour, are down. Dow and NASDAQ, both off 51. Coming up. We've got some hot after-hours movers, DoorDash, Applied Materials, DraftKings, all moving after their reports. We're going to talk about how to approach those names with Tiffany McGee, coming up. All right, welcome back. Moderna falling after hours today. The stock down over 5% after its flu vaccine failed to generate a significant immune response in a final stage trial. It is a key study for a healthcare company whose only marketed product is the COVID-19 shot. Now, the COVID pandemic revealed longstanding inequities in things like healthcare and clinical trials in particular. Eli Lilly, though, has been trying to change that. Bertha Coombs is here with more details. Bertha. Brian, only about half of clinical trials actually report racial or ethnic data, and generally it points to underrepresentation of research when it comes to people of color. But one silver lining of the pandemic is that it spurred drug makers to shake things up to boost diversity. Three years ago, Eli Lilly launched mobile lab units to keep its clinical research going during COVID. Now it's using those units to drive diversity in clinical trials at events like the Black Women's Expo in Atlanta, where Lilly looked to recruit participants for an Alzheimer's trial and build trust in communities of color. 
We're educating people about clinical research. We're able to work with local research physicians and help them help uh, our participants or potential participants understand what research is, how to be a part of it. The FDA has pushed drug makers to boost overall racial, gender, and even geographic diversity in their trials, doing more in rural areas, for example. Though Commissioner Robert Califf admits there will be limits. If you're studying, for example, a new drug um, that hasn't been tested in many people, you may need to be in a very intense environment at an academic medical center. For other kinds of trials, it's absolutely the right thing to do. You know, enrolling participants in clinical research costs drug makers tens of millions of dollars and takes a long time. But now drugstores are trying to get a piece of that business and in the process trying to help them boost diversity. CVS, Walgreens and Kroger have all launched services. And one of the benefits is that their locations can help broaden pharma's reach for trial participants. Brian? We're done. Shark Tank now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 